it was very clear that no matter how creative or intelligent or ambitious or you name it, somebody is, if you don't have like literally life's most basic human needs, it's nearly impossible to actualize your potential and and what you're capable of and your dreams or just having a family that is in a place to just somewhat enjoy life. Welcome to The Four Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. If you don't know Brett Hagler, you will. Uh, Brett's super inspirational. Uh, he's the CEO and co-founder of New Story which is a nonprofit organization pioneering market-driven solutions to end the global homelessness problem that over 1.6 billion people in this world uh, suffer from. He went through Y Combinator, and we talk about that. We talk about the idea to start this company, how he went from running an e-commerce business to eventually launching this nonprofit startup. We talk about the problem itself, uh, how large it is, and how he plans on attacking and helping solve this problem. Because when people have shelter, an adequate shelter, it dramatically changes the trajectory of families, countries, nations. Brett's super inspirational. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this as much as I did. Enjoy the show. My good friend, Moses Kagan, who's also been on this podcast four times, that's a record, four times is hosting the third Reconvene Unconference in late September. This is one of my favorite events of the year. It's three days out in beautiful Santa Monica, California, and the whole event is designed for real estate deal sponsors and allocators. It's a ton of fun. I've met some incredible people. Uh, I look forward always to seeing uh, old faces, but also meeting new faces. And this year, he's been generous enough to ask me to host a breakout session on industrial. And I know if you go to their website or follow their newsletter, you'll see about a lot of the other breakouts they'll have this year. There's some great ones. You all should come. Moses has been generous enough to offer $500 off to listeners of the podcast who buy a ticket. And you can either find a link in the show notes or you can go to reconvene.com forward slash the fort. That's R-E-C-O-N-V-E-N-E dot com forward slash the fort for $500 off. I can't wait to see y'all there. I love this company, not just because of what they do, uh, but two of my best friends run it, Nick Huber and Mitchell Baldridge. It's called Ari Koseg, and they have a singular mission to help real estate investors spend less money on taxes. If you're an investor, a broker, or a property owner, listen up. This is crucial information. A cost segregation study can help you unlock the hidden value in your property by enabling you to write off components of your building faster. This means you'll pay less in taxes and have more cash in your pocket to reinvest or distribute to your investors. The team at RE Cosseg are experts in this highly specialized field. They only use engineers to perform their studies, and they use the highest industry standards for their reports. Over the past year, they've completed over 600 Cosseg studies and have saved their clients more than $65 million in taxes. For smaller properties, they do site visits fully virtually, which makes it extremely fast and easy to get your Cosseg completed. They also have an experienced team for larger in-person site visits. Big or small, they make it extremely quick and easy. And the best part, 
Their initial analysis is absolutely free. They'll examine your property and show you how much you could be saving. Visit recostseg, that's R-E-C-O-S-T-S-E-G.com. Hey guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter, but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, our latest real estate-focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces. Stay up to date with the number one fastest-growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me, my man. Chris, great to be on with you guys. Big fan of your pod and a big fan of you. So it's good to be here. I'm a fan of you and all that you stand for. Brett and I have gotten to know each other over the last year and his story and what he's doing at New Story really captivated me. And so I thought we'd just start it there. Will you describe kind of your journey to finding New Story? And I would love it if you would talk about your experience in Haiti. Yeah. So doing something like New Story, which just for context for the audience, is a a nonprofit that focuses on providing housing opportunities to low-income families. We'll get more into how we think about investment and real estate and a lot of that stuff and innovation. But that's what we really, really focus on. And, you know, this is probably the last thing that I thought I would do growing up. And so my quick background in how I got to Haiti and then starting New Story was I grew up in Florida, had two amazing parents, sometimes had an amazing brother and there's kind of stereotypical jock all throughout middle school, high school. When I was 18 out of nowhere, I learned that life, you never know, life's going to throw at you. And I got diagnosed with a really rare form of cancer. And so that was a pretty hard time in hindsight taught me a lot about just grit and perspective and and a lot you can learn from that. Then right after that, I, I got better. It took me some time. I went to college at Florida State. When I got there, I most people would think the story would go, you know, he overcame cancer and everything now in life is just full of gratitude and full of just wanting to to make the most of of the gift he's been given and you know all of that stuff. And I kind of went the opposite way. And I kind of thought that life is short. I want to go kind of live it up, make the most of life. And so when I went to college, I was pursuing what I call the three G's. And the three G's is not <laughs> gratitude and generosity and God. It was girls, gold, and glory, yeah. uh, which turns out to be the the three things that have been the fall of mankind all throughout history, if you really think about it. And so that was what I pursued. But I I loved business. I loved learning about entrepreneurship. I was reading, you know, almost a business biography every week. And so had a real obsession with with startups and and business. And so after college, I graduated and started a, a for-profit e-commerce company. I was raising a little bit of venture capital at that time. And uh, kind of around that that season, two things happened. One, which is kind of the, the big 180 in my life, I made a big change and reclaimed the lost childhood uh, Christian faith that I had. And, you know, we'll get into details of how that happened. People get there, whatever they you know, find purpose in and all different types of ways. But for me, it was really clear that my faith needed to be the central point in my life. 
And so I made a lot of pretty significant changes to my lifestyle and to my vision and how I thought, you know, I could use a little bit of the the God-given kind of ambition or entrepreneurial mindset in a way that could maybe help some people. I, you know, have this kind of new perspective on life that is channeled through my new faith this time. And I wanted to start giving back a little bit of the money that the startup was making and it was e-commerce startup. And this is also around the time when Tom Shoes and Warby Parker and a lot of those buy one, give one brands were really popular. And so we wanted to have a component to that in our business. And one of the charities that we were going to be giving to was based in Haiti. And I went a trip, I went on a trip down to Haiti in 2014 to see this charity in person. There's an organization called Mission of Hope. They're phenomenal. When I went on that trip, the last thing in the world that I thought would happen to me is that I would see the problem that New Story is now working on. But when I got down there, I discovered the problem of you know kids and families and people like us not having life's most basic human needs around safety and shelter, uh, food, water. And from my perspective and kind of from a first principles mentality, it was very clear that no matter how creative or intelligent or ambitious or you name it, somebody is, if you don't have like literally life's most basic human needs, it's nearly impossible to actualize your potential and and what you're capable of and your dreams or just having a family that is in a place to just somewhat enjoy life. And so that I'll kind of pause there, Chris. And that was about a little more than eight years ago. And that is the time new story ended up getting started. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Let's just start with, because I think, and I'm kind of in a, I don't wouldn't say I'm in a funk. I'm in a weird spot where I kind of feel like in my life, I'm kind of waiting for that thing, that experience that captivates me in such a way that maybe it turns me a different direction. And I guess I would just start by saying, okay, you went to Haiti, you recognized something, it obviously had a huge impact on you. What happened in the next days, weeks, months? Like how quickly did you act on this? Is this something that lived in your brain for a few more years and then you picked it back up? Like how did you take action? Yeah, it's a good question, Chris. I'd say it was the kind of intersection of two things. So one was just from a, I'd say from a heart perspective of just people, there's different things that move people. And for me, you know, just just the idea that there's, and then I learned how big the global problem is, which is literally over a billion people that live in inadequate housing. And so from a heart perspective, it really caught my attention. It really moved me. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it just kind of seemed like this is a first principles, like core foundational problem that if was, you know, solved, whether it's solved for a family or, you know, on a bigger perspective, you know, millions of people, ideally, there could be so much potential unlocked. And so that was a hard perspective. But then I said the other thing, which was really important and probably would Newstory wouldn't have started without this piece. And the second piece was it really caught my entrepreneurial attention because the genesis of Newstory was not that I went to Haiti, saw people that lived in you know, tents on dirt floors, like some of the worst conditions, like literally in the world, like it's it's so hard to be around and see. So it wasn't just that I saw that and I wanted to then go start an organization. It actually wasn't that. 
I tried to go find other organizations that I could get excited about that was doing something with housing for some of the most vulnerable low-income families. And then the more that I looked and the more that I tried to understand how people are attacking the problem, that's when I started to make a, I literally still have it, a list of problems that I saw from my perspective, which wasn't to say was right or wrong, and it was no disrespect to other organizations, but what I saw was a lot of the status quo, a lot of marketing and branding that looked like it was stuck 20 years ago. I didn't see a lot of technology being used. I didn't really see a lot of innovation. I didn't understand why there wasn't more involvement with local labor, local materials, and like really being able to scale that way. Anyways, I made a long list and that ended up becoming the thing that made sense to me to to think about starting something because it was more of an entrepreneurial journey from the beginning because I saw what could and should be better, not just from the heart side, but also from a business lens or an entrepreneurial lens. And so those two things were the intersection that were the aha moment. And that was about a year process from when I first saw the problem in Haiti and ended up calling it New Story. The name New Story represents most importantly creating a new story in the families that we get to have a chance to partner with, but also a a new story in how we think about building a more modern, innovative social impact organization that would be a lot different from the traditional kind of models or approaches that I had seen or experienced. And kind of from there, Chris, we went on a limb and we applied to this program out in Silicon Valley called Y Combinator. If most people, if they know what it is, they know it's kind of a big deal. Other kind of sounds like a weird name. It may sound like a car part or something, but we applied to YC and you know we're pretty much one of the first nonprofits to ever go through that program. And so that's how we got started. Don't steal my catalytic converter and don't steal my Y Combinator <laughs> off my car. Um, yeah. Okay, when Americans think of inadequate housing, Maybe we think, oh, the window's busted out or there's a roof that has a leak. What does inadequate housing to you mean that that impacts over a billion people? Let's just kind of start there. It's a great question. Yep. So I would imagine, I would assume most people listening probably have have kids or you would imagine, you know, growing up with your family. So let's say it's a family of a family of four and you're probably living in a very, very small, I'd say probably less than 500 square feet type of shack that is probably on dirt floors that when it rains at night, it's stuff is coming through the roof. It's really hard to sleep. Maybe if it's raining really bad, you know, there could be rainwater or sometimes sewage that is rushing through your floor. So you probably have to stand up at night. That would be pretty common during, you know, bad rain. And you pretty much have no protection from any type of intruders, the weather, animals. And so you're always kind of on high alert in what we call survival mode is a lot of where, you know, there's a very obvious physical problem with not having adequate housing, but there's also a a pretty serious just mental problem and challenge that comes with not having safety and security. And so that's probably what what your day looks like. You'd be lucky to have any type of bathroom. You probably are not going to have clean water in the home. Um, You're definitely not going to have a a toilet that we know, probably not going to have a shower. And you're you're probably not 
going to have any type of electricity. And so, you know, you're not stranded with nothing out under the stars, but you're living in a very inadequate home. And that is, for the most part, the majority of people that that we come in and, uh, and try to partner with. And all of those things happening when you begin to reintroduce maybe more the American way, I don't even want to say the American way, but a clean way of living or a more stable way of living, like what are byproducts of that in kids' lives and adults' lives? I'd imagine if I was standing up all night trying to escape sewage, I'm not sleeping, I'm probably not going to be great at work tomorrow, or I'm probably sick more if I'm living on dirt roads, but or, or a dirt floor. What are things that change in people's life by just giving them a good structure? Yeah, so we now have, um, and we'll eventually talk more about what New Story has done, but just to fast forward a little bit, we've now been fortunate to partner with almost 20,000 people, and we have data on that for almost eight years now. So we've learned we've learned a lot of what the impact is. There's a very long list because it, it really almost touches everything, but the three main things that we've seen, number one would be overall health. So that's going to be your physical health that there's a lot of different ways to measure that. Also, your just your your mindset and your well-being when you know that you have a place that is safe, that is yours, that is on a piece of land that you can like plan to to be on for maybe the rest of your life or generationally, that really changes how you can think, how you can plan, how you can set goals. So first thing would be health. The second thing would be overall income. So it is absolutely amazing and inspiring to see people increase their income once they just have their basic human needs met. A couple examples of how that happens. You know, there's tons of people that start very small businesses. And so there's, they'll do that on their own, but that's not everybody. It's just very simple things like maybe a hardworking mom that wants to just show up and be, and be an awesome maid you know, and make a decent living doing that or somebody that could be a farmer when they actually have a place where they can count on for safety and not worrying about their kids being sick in the morning or them getting sick or, you know, the long list of other problems that come from kind of living in survival mode. They're just simply better able to better perform at work. So income would be the second thing. And the third thing would be education. So kids certainly um, improving their ability to learn, their ability to have a place where they can create, they can maybe get a computer, they can do whatever they're, they're designed to do and explore and be curious about. So those are the three main things would be health, income, education. And in our opinion, those are quite important when we think about trying to change not just the society, but also economies as well, these local economies. I cannot imagine. It's hard to imagine. All right. You've, we've kind of described what the problem is. Now let's go back to the moment you said we, we didn't really discuss, but I'm assuming the e-commerce business either went away or didn't work or something because you had time to go to Y Combinator. Maybe we can close that loop. And then I want to talk about how we're solving the problems. Sure. Yeah. So ended up shutting that down after about two years. It was an, an incredible learning right out of college and we we're able to to give back almost all the venture capital money we raised, which is kind of unique. And so we just kind of realized like, this isn't something that I want to dedicate my next 10 years to building. There wasn't enough, there wasn't enough differentiation. And so we just thought instead of spending, you know, 400K a month burning on Facebook ads, why don't we just, you know, return the money? And then after that, is, I actually had the idea for a news story after that. 
And so we actually were able to, I was able to go back to a lot of those early investors and they helped uh, seed new story. This chance was, this was more in a philanthropic way. So yeah, then we applied, we applied to Y Combinator. For those that aren't familiar, it's, you know, regarded as the world's top startup accelerator program. They've produced companies such as Airbnb, Coinbase, DoorDash, Instagram, Stripe. It's, it's a quite impressive list. And we went out there at that time as a as fully as a nonprofit, and we had a phenomenal experience. And so I don't know if you want me to talk any about that, Chris, or certain questions. But yeah, I would let's go in with like, what did you think the idea was? Or did you just go with like there's this huge problem and we're here at YC to kind of figure out how to tackle it? Or did you already have an idea? And to expand on that is like when I think of YC, I think about it for these for-profit companies, they were guiding you for a nonprofit. So like, how did, did they help you in a different way than they helped other people? It's a good question. The, I'll answer the last thing you said first. No, they didn't. And I think that was actually the best part about going through the program. And a lot of what I, I kind of envisioned as, you know, as a founder is that there's going to be some differences, right? There's going to be some nuance, but at large, I think you should really think about building a an organization, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit, in a lot of the same ways, right? Having a lot of the same standards, thinking about how you're recruiting talent, how you're doing branding, how you're doing marketing, how you're thinking about the quality of your product, what is really different about what you're solving. And so when we went through, and this is a long time ago, and our model has essentially entirely changed ever since. The mission hasn't changed, but we've learned, we think, much higher impact, higher leverage ways to deliver that mission. We really focused on the problem of feeling like charity was a kind of like a black hole. And when you gave, you really didn't know where the money was going, what was actually being done with it, what was actually being, who was actually being impacted, what was the overhead expenses. It just all kind of felt like a black hole. So we added a lot of transparency to that process. And we actually built a crowdfunding platform where you could go online and you could just see families that we had on the platform. Um, you could give directly to that family. 100% of that donation would go towards that family. And then when they moved in, we actually sent a move-in video back to that donor. So there was a lot of transparency in that process and crowdfunding, which was, you know, back, back almost a decade ago, that was you know, there's there's always going to be different things, and out, crowdfunding wasn't like this this huge wave, but there was a lot of you know new crowdfunding sites, and so that was kind of like the original model. It was still focused on housing. We still had the same mission, but how we deliver that mission is about night and day different from today. But that was how we got started, and we've always had this like we call it pioneering solutions to end global homelessness is our mission, and so. We really want to understand what are like the problems behind the problem, right? It's very obvious of, of the core problem, which is people not having adequate housing. But what are other problems that are really restricting them from getting that housing? And we want to, uh, we believe a lot of those problems are stuck in traditional methods and traditional systems. And so our job and where we think it's it's worthwhile to exist as an organization is to come in and identify those problems and then pioneer solutions so that we can, you know, create kind of break down barriers and give people a better opportunity to access adequate housing. Okay, so let's just cue in on that for a second. How do you go about finding the problems behind the problems? Because this you can use this framework in, in for profit or nonprofit. How did y'all think about it? Yeah, totally. So let's just use news story as an example. 
And I would say, let's think of it less as nonprofit or for profit, but just just thinking about problems, right? So, you know, we today, I'll kind of fast forward a little bit. We really focus on solving two big problems that restrict people from having access to adequate housing, right? So after you this for eight years, we think there's two main ones that we're basically dedicating the organization to solving. The first one is just the overall cost of a house, right? So if you have a cost, the cost is just too high usually, right? And so we spend a lot of time, a lot of R&D, you know, hiring team members, civil engineers, architects, creating partnerships, creating R&D projects with the goal of decreasing the cost of that home, right? So that's the first thing that we focus on. And then the second problem is that even if the home is lower cost, which is great, you then still have to solve for the problem of how does it get financed? And so the other problem that we work on is a lack of housing finance for very low-income families. And so those are kind of the two main problems that we work on. And we dedicate a lot of our our staff and our resources to creating solutions for. And we can go through some of them. But those, I'd say within any business, you know, we're those are more of the kind of systematic, like like root problems that we feel if we're able to solve, have the biggest, that's where the most leverage is and how we can have the greatest impact. And so we've kind of made this choice of saying, we, we're actually going to intentionally stop or significantly slow down just trying to raise money, raise philanthropy to fund houses and kind of build the homes how they've always been built and just only be reliant on philanthropy to, to fund the homes and build them. Because we could keep doing that. That would be great. We could probably do you know tens of thousands of those eventually, which would be amazing. But what we've decided to do is say, I think there's a way bigger, 100x, 1,000x bigger opportunity that if we can solve those core problems, then we're really helping change the, the bigger system. And that's, that's what we want to go after. And do you think like just in general, like finding the problems behind problems, it's something you have to just learn along the way? Like you wouldn't have known that necessarily from day one or did, was there like an exercise you all went through or was it just trial by error where it was finally like a light bulb went off was like, no, these are the real problems. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say it's both. I would say that it's certainly been kind of in our and my co-founders and our team, like our DNA to try to try to exist to to try to solve big, those problems behind the problems. And then the second part would be, yeah, just a lot of testing and a lot of experimenting. And unfortunately, with that usually comes comes failure, comes challenges. You know, sometimes you're intentionally choosing to go a harder path, but you're doing that, especially for us, because our North Star is impacting those people that we can. You're choosing to go through those because you think what's on the other side of actually kind of bursting through those problems behind the problem is what is going to lead to the biggest, biggest outcomes, right? And that's obviously going to be the same for, for businesses as well. Okay, let's describe like how you're doing it. And maybe we'll start with where are you doing it and describe the situation. We kind of described what it's like to have inadequate housing, but describe like the 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 bigger situation going on in a place you decide to go to. Yeah, for sure. And, and just for context for the audience, we now primarily work in Latin America. So primarily in Mexico and El Salvador, 
So I'll kind of describe what we're working on in Mexico and really the kind of the future of New Story. And so I'd say almost every, and I don't want to say 100%, but nearly 100% of nonprofits are primarily focused on, in my example with housing, raising money, right? So I could say on this podcast, hey, everybody donate and we'll collect that money. And let's say it's $15,000. And then we're going to use that money to go that $15,000 to go build a house for a very low income family. And then they're going to move into that house, right? That's pretty standard across the board. And, you know, we did that for a long time. And there's a lot to be proud of for that, because you can do that in a dignified way. You can do that in a way that is still innovative and unique. And, And we did a lot of that. The problem with that, that we've realized is that it's very hard to scale when you're talking about one of the world's largest and most expensive problems. So if you think about today, there's literally about 1.6 billion people that live in the type of conditions we talked about before. That number is expected to literally double to 3 billion people. And so you just do the math and it's like, there's no way you're gonna be able to raise enough philanthropy to even make a dent and the problem because it's just so the problem is just so it's so big and it's so expensive. And so so what we're doing Chris is instead of us our whole model of getting people into housing being dependent on us raising philanthropy and then being able to build a really good house for that family, we actually want to do it in a way that we call it just market-based So what we want that family to do is to not have to be dependent on news story or other charities or government coming in with charitable aid. And we want them just to be able to have an opportunity to get a loan for a new house or to be able to fix their home in a way that they can pay for it. And that is actually profitable in that market. And so we are just essentially, it's very basic. We're trying to make these local markets become efficient and work for underserved low-income families in a way that they can afford the cost of the house and that they could also afford the financing and that whoever is building the home or lending to that family, we're unapologetic about this. It needs to be fairly profitable to those providers or else nothing is ever going to scale and you're not going to be able to get all of the the larger impact that you need and really changing the system. So what we're trying to do, Chris, in summary, is not just build homes, but build housing markets in these environments that you know operate on a lot of the, the beautiful components of capitalism and doing that in a way where today it's just an, an efficient market. I asked you this at the event we were at together. How does a current, is there even a market today in any, like, how does it work today? How do people, if you live in a, you know, you describe some of this housing where it's basically four pieces of plastic, you know, almost like tilted up and it's, it's duct taped together so much. How does that even transact or do you just kind of build it and you get it or how does it work? Yeah. So a lot of, yeah, today, a lot of families try to just, they try to self-build that, that inadequate housing structure. And that can literally happen over 10 to 20 years where they're just slowly trying to store away cash that they're making. They're slowly trying to add, you know, a wall or a floor. It's insanely inefficient, right? It's like, it's not a quality home. So that is kind of how that's like the status quo of how it happens. 
And so what we're doing and we're coming in, I'll give you an example of a project that we're, we've been doing in Mexico is we'll partner with existing kind of just people in the market. So to us, that looks like a, a land developer, a home developer, and then a local bank. And so let me explain how that works. So we come in in an area where we know there's a lot of demand from, from these type of families that dream of having a life-changing home and on land that they own. So we, we choose that area. We'll partner with a land developer and we'll actually buy a large piece of land and we'll develop that land. And what we did in this project is we actually started to uh, market and promote the idea of a family buying their land. And then eventually, if they kind of do a lot of the right steps, seeing the dream of being able to afford a new house that would be built through a mortgage. And so we created marketing material, all types of stuff for the families to understand. And then they started by actually buying their lot first. So their land, their land lot first, which in America, we might think that's, you know, insanely expensive. And there's a lot of time, like, it's not easy, but it's way more affordable for a family to buy a a small piece of land after we've gone in and bought a larger piece of land and developed it. And so what that does, Chris, is families start to pay and it doesn't take that long. It maybe takes like 12 to 18 months total. So they're building a credit history that they didn't have before because they they have no like track record or credit history before. And then they're also gaining collateral. That's actually a good market value, which would be that piece of land. And so from there, after they've completed those payments, they're in a much better position to kind of move to that next step, which would be getting a longer term loan, in this case, a mortgage for a new house. And so we partnered with a local bank that we found and we kind of told them about this model and this project. And so they're going to be financing mortgages for all of these homes that we're building in this area, which is about 200 houses. And then we found a developer that will be building those 200 homes. And we did a construction bridge loan to get those homes built. And then once they're, the families move in to the new houses, the mortgage provider comes in and provides, I mean, this is classic real estate development, provides a takeout to put up the construction bridge loan. And then families are able to um, actually afford a lower cost home because we used innovation and architecture to get the cost lower. And then they're also able to afford the financing that's required because they're in a much better area. They own the land, they have credit history, and they actually have a home that is a good product that has market value. And that's how, how they're able to get that loan. So that's one example. So that's that's a lot different than going in and saying, hey, we just want to raise... Uh, actually, that example historically would have cost about $3 million in philanthropy, which is awesome. And we did that. You know, We've raised almost $100 million in philanthropy in our first eight years. And that's great. Like We're super proud of it. It's super high impact. But when you don't bring in that whole market component... There's no way it can scale or compound. There's no like example to that local market of a land developer, a home builder, or a bank to, to do any of it themselves because they're so dependent on somebody coming in with philanthropy to do it. So that one project historically would have cost about $3 million. And we're now kind of towards the, working on this project. And it's only going to cost news story about $50,000 in philanthropy. 
for the same outcome. So just think about that leverage and that impact and how much more we can do. And the last piece I'll say is in this example, again, this is all from like an impact kind of North Star. The best part is that we don't have to be there and keep doing it because we can really like show product market fit and demonstrate it. And then those kind of existing businesses, land developer, home builder, a lender, they can see that this is actually profitable and that it's an underserved market and they can just, they can keep doing it and they don't have to be dependent on new story. So there's so much more impact that can compound over time by proving these out. So that's an example of what we do. That's a lot different than how we started and took, you know, almost eight years of learnings to figure out what's kind of the highest leverage use of, of our, our resources. And when you think about going into like different markets where they have different leaders or different sets of rules, or is there is something that if you're living in these type of conditions that almost every government or community is accepting of these basic things that you're trying to bring together, which is are there countries out there or regions that are like, we wouldn't let this happen to our people. We want to control it. Or for the most part, are people very accepting of the idea? Yeah, we have a staff that really just tries to prioritize going to places that are going to be friendly and that want us there. You know, unfortunately, that's definitely not every place. I'd say the majority of places do want it. A lot just don't have maybe the the resources or even sometimes some of the, we call it technical expertise, you know, which is just kind of a, a phrase of the know-how, right? Like sometimes they just don't really have the knowledge or the understanding. And so what we try to do is we try to come in, do it all locally, right? That's what we like. We think that's the highest impact, the best way to scale do it locally. But that doesn't mean that we can't bring really great techniques or architecture or design or lower cost building methods, right? We're bringing that to this area. And then we're also helping bring some of the, the financing piece that a lot of places today maybe don't have. So the best ways that municipalities can really help New Story now is just being very friendly with a lot of their their permitting and like a lot of stuff in, similar in the US, right? That is really important to us because we, um, I don't think I mentioned this yet, but we primarily have built large communities. So think of uh, 100, 200, 300, sometimes up to 400 home developments, which comes with, you know, roads and services and a lot of the you know, the basics that come with that. Okay, we'll go backwards a little bit. You said 1.6 headed to 3 billion. I would think the problem would be shrinking. What is causing it to double? They're just having more kids or like, how is this expanding? Yeah, that's, I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, I, and this is a little bit above, above my pay grade is like trying to really explain it well. But, you know, I think people are just, there's not enough inventory being built, right? So there's, there's not enough new inventory being built to catch up with increased population. A lot of the income, you know, is in some parts of the world has encouraging way has, has moved up a little bit, but still going extreme poverty, trying to get out of extreme poverty. A lot of people are still in a very low income place. And so they, even if they're increasing from $3 a day to nine to $10 a day, like that's very meaningful in a lot of areas of their lives, but it's still very, very, very low income in order to actually afford housing. So that isn't increasing in the way that it should. This, this, the income levels around the world, climate's a big piece of it, a lot of other things, but. 
Okay, and then back to like the housing and getting the housing costs down, but you're going into markets, you're parking with partnering with home builders. Are y'all giving the home builders plans and techniques on how to build this? Or are you participating in that in some way? Or are you leaving it up to yeah, them? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a combination of both because there's really competent local builders that we're able to work with. And, and we really want to respect that and learn from them. And so we by no means want to come in and be like, this is exactly the way, this is exactly how you have to do it. But we also you know, can come in and provide certain expertise that that our our team has and that we've used other in other communities or countries certain innovations you know that we're working on that they don't currently have but they want to try it out and so they'll adopt whatever that method might be and so we kind of get to take best practices from all the different areas that we work we also have a innovation lab at new story where we'll test different type of methods through an innovation lab and then um, what really works from there you know we'll we'll start to slowly expand that to other areas through housing developers adopting whatever that innovation is. And the big idea is like, again, we want to like catalyze and prove a lot of these things, like help get product market fit. And then eventually like we can kind of exit and pull out and just have them carry it on and, and compound the impact um, without us having to be there to do everything, which is really the big goal and strategy. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I want to ask one more thing on construction. A lot of folks listening to this are in real estate. Maybe this is a more selfish question, but is there anything you've learned in building this stuff that when you look at American buildings and development, you see like, man, we could build this stuff so much more efficiently and cheaper, or is a lot of what you're studying only kind of good for the type of housing you're trying to build? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, unfortunately, there are a lot of differences. One is just, it kind of starts with like overall land costs, you know, aren't we can get land for such a lower price. And so that, that, you know, really brings down the overall cost. The, for one of the methods, actually I'll walk through a couple methods that we have that have really worked. So one method that we have, which is kind of the more, more basic method, but has been really awesome for helping low-income families get started with adequate housing is uh, this very simple idea to set up the the architecture of the home in a way where families can like basically have the home grow over time. So very basic, very simple, but like showing from the very beginning, a families are signing up for a smaller like starter home, right? And that's it depends on the area, but that square footage is going to be a lot smaller. But it's designed, like the roof is designed in a way, the foundation is designed in a way, the walls are designed in a way where it can actually expand and grow over time. And it usually doesn't take that long. And we're actually showing the family that vision from the very beginning. We actually have like a, a VR visual experience that we show families, which is really cool, where they can see like, oh, in two years or three years, if I save X amount of money, which will show them a, you know, a path for that, then I could build a, a new room or start to build my second story. So that's like one very basic component, but is is very effective in getting lower income families into that adequate home that's smaller to start, but they can see how it grows. You know, other things that have been exciting for us, 3D printing has been very exciting. Uh, we've done that with, I'm sure a lot of people know, uh, they're listening with a startup called Icon out of Texas, which is doing a lot of work in the US. It's very exciting, but still very early in the long journey of that. And then we are finally going to do, looking like we're going to do our first modular prefab project. We have looked for 
almost six years to find something that really pencils out to be lower cost for where we work. And we think we we found something. And so that's going to kind of go through our innovation lab and pilot that you can't talk about yet. So those are like three examples. And then we you know, also just try to work through getting local labor at a good price and you know, trying to source a lot of materials at once. So a lot of basic, basic components. And so I think that leads to the question, which I think is kind of an obvious answer, but you said that if once y'all can prove up one successful project, capitalism and market dynamics kind of take their own force and kind of bring this forward. It doesn't require a new story to keep developing one after the other. You just talked about using local labor and local materials is like, what is the impact of creating a market of y'all going in and creating this? Like, what are the other benefits? We talked about like what the people that have the houses get, but what does the whole community get when this is all said and done? Yeah, I freaking love that that thought, Chris, because that's that's what's getting me so excited and getting us so excited. I'll kind of use one phrase that I've been saying and then I'll unpack it. So again, New Story did a lot of this and a lot of traditional nonprofits do a lot of this where they can be really great, like even excellent at delivering a service, but families are still, they're still charitable beneficiaries, right? And so that's one way to do it. And I'm not not knocking that. We've done a lot of that. We love it. Well, and that impactful. to be clear, that's hey, I give you house for free and that and that's the charitable and that's and that's the transaction. Correct. There could be the family usually has some type of input where they're they're paying a small amount or they're helping like there's usually some component of that which is really good and important, but at the end of the day, it's still a, a charitable beneficiary compared to that the idea of that same family not being dependent on becoming a charitable beneficiary, but actually becoming an active participant or a customer in the market, right? And that is the step change that we're, we're working on that we see and that we're betting the future of the organization on. And so back to your point, Chris, that, I mean, that literally like, not to get too crazy, but that can have significant changes in these economies, right? Because there's like the very like, obvious benefits in the few, in the beginning of, well, that's paying local workers, that's paying local developers, that land developer is making a profit, that lender is actually making a profit. So they can hire more people and they have more money that they can lend, right? But then also the families that are moving into these homes, they're increasing their income, they're building more of a credit history, they're building more of a net worth or an asset that they didn't have before. And you could think about all the trickle down effects of that. So yeah, we're kind of like, unapologetically, and I am like a believer in the kind of most beautiful version of what capitalism can be and the capitalistic markets can be. And, you know, you obviously need to do that in a way that is our whole reason for being that is more than fair for the families and that, you know, has a lot of guardrails set up. But that's what we get really excited about. And that's what we think can not only change the lives and the trajectories of individual people and their dreams, but also the the local economies, which the more I've gotten into this work, I realize, man, like that is the thing, like changing the economies is kind of the the main thing that can have, you know, larger ripple effects, uh, not just today, but, you know, decades into the future. And housing, I mean, just think about the US, right? Like think about what home ownership and, and housing has done here the good side of it and some of the downside of it that, you know, ideally should have been done a lot differently. It's very exciting. And so that's what we're trying to do internationally. 
I remember us having a conversation. You and I were sitting at a table watching some folks play flag football, and, and we were chatting about some of this. And I just asked you, you know, you entered the game on a for-profit mission and you ended up in a nonprofit mission. How do you talk to other people that are wanting to do something like this, that are thinking about this? And for you, not to say that I mean this in the most positive way possible, but you know that news story is never going to, in your, maybe your lifetime, be able to get to all three billion people. So you could make this argument, the, the problem, you keep tackling it one day at a time. But when people are coming to you now as a leader in kind of the nonprofit world and, and they're entrepreneur by nature, they're impact driven, like, what are you guys talking about? Is it you helping them get off the ledge and do it? Like, what kind of questions are people asking? Because I'm interested. I think. Yeah, it's a good question. Bringing entrepreneurship to this line of work is really interesting. I'll answer it in two ways. So the first is that you absolutely don't have to have a nonprofit to do the work, right? Like you don't have, it doesn't have to be structured that way. For me and my story and how we got started, it turned out to, that was the genesis of it. And that's what we believe is, is the best structure for us to keep for a very long time. While we still, we didn't get into this yet, Chris, but we're actually, New Story is raising impact investment funds that have a return. And so it's not to say that we can't have components of our organization that that can throw off returns and profit, but at our core, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. So the first thing I would say is that you absolutely don't have to structure it as a nonprofit. So if I was, and New Story actually started about a year and a half ago, we actually incubated a venture capital fund and we spun it out. It's called Home Team Ventures. And my co-founder of New Story, her name's Alexandria Lofsey. She's now, she's running that full-time. She's the managing director. And what Home Team Ventures does is it invests in early stage technology companies that focus on big breakthroughs in construction and housing and architecture. And so we're literally, and those are full-blown for-profit companies, you know, are trying to create products that are really changing something. And if those products work, the market is so big, then it's going to, you know, ideally the, the thesis is that it's going to scale and it's going to be a big company. And so I think you definitely don't have to think about starting a nonprofit. There are a lot of ways that you can work on some of these problems in a way that that can be for profit. You know, there's financing business, there's I mean, all types of stuff you could think about as an entrepreneur. Then the second thing I'd say is if somebody does want to start a nonprofit, then, you know, it's to me, it's it's all about how do you what really what I get really excited about is how do you create an organization that has the potential to, you know, have impact at scale, right? And that is what's so exciting to me as an entrepreneur is to have the ability to work with incredible people to create something that, and we still have a very long way to go, but actually has a chance to impact millions of people. That is our goal. That is our North Star. That is what we're designing the organization for. And that's what gets me up in the morning. And that's what's so exciting to me. And it's, you know, it's way less about, is it a nonprofit? Is it a for-profit? Are we going to go public? Are we not? And it's more of like, we have the opportunity to potentially create something world-class that can impact millions of people. And that's a phenomenal journey to go on. And so that's, that's what I've decided to do and we've decided to do. I have so much respect. I wanted to ask you two questions just kind of on philanthropy in general. 
I'll speak from my experience and then you speak from yours after I ask the question, but some charitable organizations, they're huge. And some people would tell you, don't give them money. It all goes to corporate. By the time it gets to the cause, it's not good. And then some say, you know, everybody has an opinion on these things from your perspective. And you started this conversation off with y'all's transparency and being able to show people how should somebody like me do due diligence on a nonprofit before giving them money? Yeah, it's a great question. I think ideally they should have some type of simple, compelling material that's on their website or listed somewhere. Like it shouldn't be this like this Easter egg hunt to find where is the information that you're looking for, right? That should be very clear and transparent of where, how the money's being allocated, where it's going, right? We actually, New Story actually have a, has a group of donors that's a, a smaller group that we call the builders. And the builders only fund our team and our OPEX and our plane flights and our R&D, but they're choosing to do that, right? And so we just, we make it very clear and transparent about, hey, if you're giving here, it literally goes to a bank account that pays my staff that if we're doing a recruiting trip, it's paying for that, et cetera. And those people have opted to do that because a lot of them are leaders or entrepreneurs or business owners, and they understand like, oh, well, that's what it takes to scale something. So I actually want to give there while as other people, which is, you know, 99% of our other donors, they're giving more to the projects, right? Or to an, an exciting R&D or innovation project that they know they want to give to. So ideally, Chris, you should just know how the money is being allocated. And ideally, you should have a, you should know what that is. And you shouldn't have to find that. It shouldn't have to be hard to find. And everybody sh and every philanthropy should be able to provide that if you ask them. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And I actually would say that there's not I think sometimes people get too caught up in looking for like this perfect ratio or like, like, in my opinion, I think that the management team at that nonprofit, they should be doing what they think is best, but they need to be able to explain why they're doing it. Right. And so as long as that's clear, then I think it's great to give to them. The other thing would be just you know, maybe going back to like what I was talking about earlier is like, just trying to understand how are they, what's the problem behind the problem that they're trying to work on? And, and what are you as a potential partner or donor? Like, what do you and your, your spouse want at that time of your kids? Right? Like I, like my spouse and I sometimes will, we'll give this something because we don't care as much about the bigger term, huge strategy and like all this stuff I've been talking about today. And it's more of just, Hey, this is something that has hit our heart. We think it goes direct to this person or to this, this cause. And I maybe care less about the whole like bigger picture strategy, all of that stuff. So I think it just depends what, what you want to do in that moment. And ideally, the last thing I'll say, Chris, ideally, like if it's something that's going to be maybe a larger partnership, whatever that means for the person listening, your family, right? That could mean a thousand dollars, $10,000, a million dollars larger Then I do think it's important to, you don't have to become like you know, super close with the management team, but you should ideally have an understanding of who are the leaders at the organization. And I think trying to have a conversation with them or learn, like read what they've written, like just like you would do in a business, right? You would probably try to think about who is that leader? What have they written? What is their track record? Can I talk with them if you were going to make a larger investment? So I would try to have a very similar process if you're going to make a larger commitment to a nonprofit. The second question was, 
you know, I've raised money for real estate, but what I'm offering people is a return on their money and tax benefits and, and all of these things. And you've raised a hundred million in eight years for philanthropy, but you've also raised money for a for-profit deal. Can you describe the differences between the two and how you think about raising money for philanthropy? That's something I've never done, but I feel like in my life that will become part of my journey along the way is being more involved in this. And I have no idea like best practices, how to even think about it. Like, how do you think about it? Yeah, I would say I'll kind of answer it in two ways. I'll say how we've raised philanthropy and then kind of our how we're thinking about raising just overall capital for the rest of the decade, which part of it is philanthropy. Part of it is actually impact investment that may not have as high enough returns as someone as excellent as yourself, Chris, but does have a return with it. So I think on the philanthropy side, there are a lot, I'd say there's way more commonalities than differences in how you, how you would raise capital, right? So for us, we've primarily raised money through individuals and high net worth families. And I think that those folks are looking for a few main things. One, I think people recognize and respect excellence, right? I think it's usually how they've made had some success or they respect it and it's distinct. And so I think, you know, we just always tried to have a really high standard when we're presenting something, when we're trying to be thoughtful about how we're explaining something, materials we're creating, like we're just, we're trying to always keep a really high standard. And I think that that is, you know, sometimes not to give ourselves too much credit, but I do think that that's sometimes distinct in the nonprofit world. We didn't want to come at it and be like, oh, these are the nonprofit charity guys. So I should expect a different type of pitch or pitch deck or thoughtfulness. Like we wanted to just have the same standard as a really good growing for-profit startup with like a lot of our peers at Y Combinator. And so we tried to, the first thing is just like really keep that high standard. And I think people respect that. The second thing would be this kind of mantra that I say sometimes is that bold ideas attract bold people. And so when you are talking, I'll give you one example. I won't say the name of the individual, but very well-known person in Silicon Valley. And this is a true story. So if I emailed him or said, hey, name, would you and your family like to fund one house at New Story? It's going to cost $10,000. The person's so busy. He gets so inundated with all types of things. It's not really that bold. It's not that distinct. It's not that unique. If I send another email and said, hey, would you and your family want to fund an entire community and it's going to cost $2 million and you can fund the entire community of 200 houses? He did it, right? Because it's something that came at him of, oh, I don't get at, like, this is different. Like, this is a little more bold. This is a bigger swing. And so I think we've, we've tried to do that. And that's how we've been able to, you know, have, have a couple really big examples and stories like that. We've been able to raise a couple million dollars at one time by, by kind of pitching these maybe bigger ideas or bigger projects. And so I think that's also really important is that bold ideas attract bold people and philanthropy. And the third thing I would say is it's kind of like it goes together, but being really being able to articulate your vision, just like a regular founder probably would, but then also have like a very detailed plan of execution of what y'all need to do in the short term. And I think people really appreciate and understand that. So, you know, those 
none of those things are like anything that unique, but those are three things that come to mind that have really worked for us. They're not easy, right? Because they require a lot of thoughtfulness, a high standard, thinking bigger, et cetera. But you know, that's usually just like in the for-profit world, that's usually where you're going to get a bigger fundraise is if you have a lot of those same qualities. And what would you tell somebody? I would imagine if that trip to Haiti hadn't been a trip, but maybe you just watched a YouTube video, we might not be having this conversation today. For folks that, that have the means to do so, is there any replacement for going and being on the ground and seeing it for yourself? Like, how do you encourage people from that perspective? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. So that, yeah, I mean, that trip absolutely changed my life. You know, the other gentleman that was on that trip is somebody that you've got to know well, Chris, and some people listening might know this guy, Mike Arietta, who was the co-founder or the founder of Garden City Companies. So we've been best friends since middle school. And we went on on this trip together and it absolutely changed the trajectory of both of our lives. We weren't planning on it. You know, we knew that it would it would have some impact. And when somebody goes, you probably don't need to have as high expectations of this is going to change everything. But I think just, you know, the simple idea of getting out of our comfort zones, doing something that is so easy to say no to or to punt or to put off. Like, I just think that when we get out of our comfort zones and we do something that is distinct and that a lot of other people aren't always doing, I think we get a lot of benefits from that. And so I think everyone would significantly benefit from getting out of your kind of your comfort zone, some of your, you know, your bubble, what you're used to, and just really understanding and seeing more of what the majority of the world is truly like. And so for me, like I grew up in an awesome household, like super lucky in, in hindsight, like basically hit the jackpot from just parents and we weren't wealthy, but just had everything in like a very comfortable, awesome American home. And I just never understood until I was about 23 years old, what so much of the world actually lives like. And that just really hit me, man. Like it just, it just really hit me. It it gave me perspective. It gave me a bigger picture of the world. And I think that's so healthy for all of us, not just in our journey of maybe you know, trying to discover some more purpose or something like that, but also how we think about building businesses or building companies or, you know, culture and like just having that perspective, I think it's only additive to our lives. So I would highly, highly 10 out of 10 recommend people going and experiencing that. And you can do it on the cheap. You could do it as a volunteer. You could, I mean, there's so many different ways to do it. So that's a perfect way to bring it home. If one man, I think you know how I feel about you. I'm just, you're very inspirational. You know, I'm rooting for you and I know a lot of people are. If somebody wants to, is listening, wants to know more about what's going on at News Story or get in touch, like where would where would you point them? Yeah, we'll just go to our website. It's newstoryhomes.org. So I would go there. You could see more about what we do. We have two documentaries up on our website. One was one that Apple TV did, which is really cool. And then another one that we self-produce ourselves. So you can learn more about our work there and then ways that people can get involved. I mean, anybody could donate any amount they want on our website. We have this other program that's a little more higher level called the Builders Program. And so that's kind of this private group of families and companies that just give to our team and our operational expenses and our R&D budget. 
So that's another way to get involved. And then the third way, which is you know relatively new, is that we are going to have different impact investment funds that people will eventually be able to invest into later this year. And so if they just kind of give their email, we'll be able to to share when those are available later this year. Right, you're the man. Thank you again for joining me today, buddy. Thanks, Chris. Very thoughtful, curious questions, man. I appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 